the U.S. Supreme Court has weighed in pretty definitively on several of the most contentious issues of our era, racial bias in college admissions, President Biden's fiat forgiveness of student loans, and the freedom of creative designers to disagree with the state's view of marriage. Another federal judge has weighed in to put the kibosh on the Biden administration efforts to press social media companies to censor on their behalf. We will discuss these matters and more on today's episode of Independent Outlook. Greetings, everyone. I'm Graham Walker coming to you today from the Independent Institute in Oakland, California. We're right across the bay from San Francisco, and we try and bring you an independent take on the issues of the day, keeping a careful eye on the fate of liberty in particular. And as always, I'm joined by my colleague, Dr. Williamson Evers. Bill Evers is the director of our Center on Educational Excellence here at the Independent Institute. Bill Evers, thanks for joining us. Thank you. Great to see you as always. And then today, uh, I'm also joined by our featured expert and colleague, William Watkins Jr., who's joining us uh, from South Carolina. Hello, Bill Watkins. Good to be with you gentlemen today. It's great to see you. Of course, our friends who've been watching us for a while recognize you as a frequent contributor to our conversations. Uh, uh, William Watkins Jr. is a research fellow with the Independent Institute, author of the Independent Institute book, Crossroads for Liberty, a highly recommended volume that you can find on our website, independent.org, and on Amazon. Uh, also, I think that you have been a prosecutor and defense lawyer, practiced in several state and federal courts. You've written several other books like one called Judicial Monarchs and one called Reclaiming the American Revolution. You've been in Forbes, USA Today, the San Francisco Examiner, and lots of other places. So it's an honor to have you join us today for this conversation. My pleasure to be with you. So so let's get started. Um, seems the U.S. Supreme Court decided that Harvard and the University of North Carolina were messing up in their admissions policies, specifically because they were at odds with, I guess, the equal protection principle of the 14th Amendment. Um, that's the basic reason for their holdings. Is that right, Watkins? No, that's absolutely right. They were at odds with the equal protection clause um, of the amendment, though they were in line with some rather foolish precedent of the Supreme Court dating back to 1976. Exactly. Exactly. It's strange how that can be. Sometimes you can be in alignment with the court, but out of alignment with the Constitution, which says that no no state shall deprive any person of due process of law uh, or of the protection of the law. So the first question, this is a very, very preliminary question, but very important one. So the way I read this is talking about what states may do. But I mean, I get that, I guess, with the University of North Carolina, which seems to be an entity of the state of North Carolina. But I mean, Harvard's not an entity of the state of Massachusetts. So what's the deal there? Can you give us like a preliminary explanation of that point, Bill Watkins? It's very simple. Whoever takes the king's shilling does the king's bidding, <laughs> whether it be student loans yep. or otherwise. Uh, <laughs> and therefore, you find yourself under the jurisdiction of the federal government uh, in these matters. So I'm wondering, I'm wondering if it does really make sense because as we have over the years expanded the amount there were, uh, and occasions of government subsidies, it seems as if every enterprise, every 
organization becomes an arm of the state. And I think that's kind of crazy. I mean, it, it deprives entities of a lot of liberty. Well, I mean, I guess you could say that no one's... to a... avoid uh, taking the subsidy. I mean, of course, we have these cases of Hillsdale and Grove City, but even so, if you poked around, they're probably taking some federal money, too. So, well, Harvard didn't uh, have to take the federal money, Bill. Harvard could have said, oh, I, we have an endowment. We're not going to take any federal money. Yes, We're going to discriminate that's right. on the basis of race. <laughs> okay, but... But they're not. But they're not. I still think, and Richard Epstein, who's a serious legal scholar, sometimes at least agrees that really Harvard is a private entity and not a state, an arm of the state and that we should distinguish between the two. And he's not the only scholar that thinks that way. So it's possible that they should have decided it differently. They should have said one thing about University of North Carolina and another thing about Harvard. That and in could the case be. of Harvard, if we consider it a private entity, then we're talking about property rights, then we're talking about who is admitted to the boundaries of the property and what discretion the owners have in deciding. And this is important for the legacy admissions question because... But let's... Before so, you go to okay, legacy... but I'm, just, I'm not going to go into it. I'm just going to okay. say that it's important. Well, so, so going back to Watkins, um, if I'm understanding this correctly, the basic rationale for the the reason there's there's an issue here is because Harvard because UNC is an entity of the state and Harvard takes money, and so as a result of that, they both are indirectly state actors and consequently are constrained by the equal protection clause. No, I, I don't disagree so, with Bill mm -hmm. Ebers on how maybe things ought to be, but as things are. Right. Uh, I mean, that's one reason I'm not a big fan of school vouchers and school choice is only do I think those are great ways to get kids out of t failing public schools? Sure. But the problem is under the current state of the law, if you start taking state money, then you're going to have to uh, abide by the state's demands on, for example, bathrooms and this, that and the other under policy and uh you know, therefore you're under the thumb of the state. Should it be that way? Does Ebers make good arguments uh, about why Harvard ought to be just considered a private institution? He does, but the reality is um, this is a world we're living in right now. But you I, know, agree with the, Watkins. In both... I agree with Watkins that this is the world we're living in. So, mm -hmm. But, I mean, in both cases, the issue is that these institutions were... Uh, counting by race. They were uh, giving some people preference at admissions based on their race and others disadvantage in admissions based on their race. And even private entities in the U.S. based upon law, aren't they subject to Civil Rights Act? And so you can't discriminate on the basis of race, even aside from the 14th Amendment? Well, in some, in some ways, if you look at the decision, they are applying that to the discrimination laws to Harvard more than they are the constitutional the Ah, okay. So either way, either way. So well, Watkins, that, can again, you kind of... Again, as, if I may invoke Richard Epstein again, there are a lot of problems with the amount of inf 
uh, interference that discrimination law uh, imposes on, I mean, the bathrooms thing is an example of what's Watkins, being imposed can, on private, too. Watkins, can you start, give us a thumbnail sketch of, of the decision? No, sure. Well, you know, look at a little history real quick. Um, you know, the Supreme Court, unfortunately, has had opportunities long in the past to enforce a reasonable equal protection principle. You know, why do we have a 14th Amendment? Essentially, so black people and white people would be treated the same under the law. We wouldn't have uh, different categories of citizens. Some citizens get certain benefits because of their race, and others get burdens because of their race. That is the crux of the 14th Amendment. Unfortunately, you have the Supreme Court with Plessy versus Ferguson and some other cases that said, oh, separate but equals okay. You can have separate rail cars for blacks and whites or separate facilities as long as they're equal. Um, and of course, that's balderdash. You're, you start separating people based on their race like that. Uh, you're not going to have equal facilities. I don't even know if that's really capable. Uh, so from the beginning, we have ignored the true equal protection principle. And then as we go forward, yes, you know, Brown versus Board overturns the Plessy rationale, but it's not long before government, the federal government and other areas of government, uh, again, rather than not discriminating against people, which is the demand of the 14th Amendment, um, we have this idea, well, we can, for certain classes that historically suffer discrimination, uh, we can give them certain benefits that other folks wouldn't get, i.e., we can discriminate in favor of them, benign discrimination, they called it. And, of course, you have this rolling mm -hmm. through the years, the Bakke case with the uh, out in California, uh, one of the first affirmative action cases to hit the court. Uh, race could be used as a check mark, as a benefit, and it just snowballs. As a plus. Yes. As a, as a mm -hmm. tipping. That's right, as a plus. Uh, and, uh, you know, it just continues to grow and snowball despite... Uh, good dissenting arguments on the court that the way to end discrimination is to stop discriminating. The state should stop discriminating. And, of course, things have gotten worse as we've marched into the 21st century as we are uh, a race-obsessed world. And, you know, Justice Sotomayor's dissent, uh, race still matters. To her, really, race is the only thing that matters. And this idea of mm -hmm. balancing and that we have systematic racism unless every tribe uh, is represented uh, by their proportion in society and, say, a Harvard class or a UNC class, then that's evidence of systematic racism, and um, these mu things must be addressed. Uh, so that's a little bit of history. So what did the Supreme Court do to answer your question? Well, finally, they exercised mm -hmm. the good sense and said, let's look at the original purpose of the 14th Amendment. Uh, college admissions is a zero-sum game. If your college has 200 seats, it has 200 seats. That means some people are right. not going to get in if they're number 201 and 202, and they didn't have the mm -hmm. right racial composition for your balance of the student body. Uh, they suffer an actual injury, and uh, the state should not be engaged in such chicanery there. Uh, and the court uh, called UNC and Harvard out on that, 
um, and said, you have to stop using race uh, in the manner that you are. Uh, so this is a huge victory. You know, Justice O'Connor, uh, not too many years ago, claimed and you know, a judicial fiat that, oh, you know, after 25 years, uh, we won't need affirmative action. Um, I don't know where she arrived at that other than from between her two ears. Uh, but finally, the court said, yeah, we're not looking at timetables. It's just wrong to discriminate, uh, whether you're discriminating against blacks, whites, Asians in college admissions. Uh, we will not tolerate this. Don't you think, uh, and I address this to both of you, that it's interesting how the mainstream prestige media have constantly brushed over, passed over, the mistreatment of talented, hardworking Asian Americans in this whole controversy. And also it's interesting from the other side how Asian Americans who have been less salient in politics have stepped to the fore to fight against this racial discrimination. That's a good point, Bill. Um, you know, the Asian American population doesn't fit the narrative uh, that suits the left's needs. Uh, they aren't the right kind of minority for them, that they can uh, get some mileage out of casting them as a victim class, so they ignore them. Good point. Have, and some people they pointed out that had, they've certainly experienced uh, some wrongs in American history. Uh, there's just no absolutely. doubt about that. Uh, I also, I think, a point that came up in some of the conservative and libertarian commentary is why aren't people paying more attention to the feeder schools, the K-12 schools that are so bad that some talent is not being picked up that can, uh, you know, go into the top most selective schools if our K-12 public schools were not so horrible. I noticed that Roland Fizer, Roland Fryer, had a piece in the New York Times saying, why don't these schools with huge endowments create public schools, nonprofit schools, branches of their own universities, whatever, that are K-12 schools and run them meritocratically and get you know, comb the population for talent that's underdeveloped. And uh, that didn't have a population. I mean, it was a very sensible article. Well, uh, yeah, but wouldn't that just create a situation where admission to kindergarten becomes as highly charged as admission to college, and everyone's desperately trying to get into the Harvard kindergarten, and then the well, Harvard kindergarten is going to choose people by race into the Harvard look, kindergarten? Not, not so... Roland is himself a black man, and the point is that he's not, he's trying to, he's not trying to have a quota system. He's trying to expose uh, parts of the population that could be part of the talented and effectual part of the society uh, to a, a better chance, a better opportunity. I think it's not a bad idea. I don't, I don't think it's going to happen. They can barely run. You know, these schools can barely run themselves as they are right now. I don't know that they can expand effectively into the lower grades. But at least he was, 
everybody else is trying to figure out backdoor ways of bringing back racial quotas. If you read the liberal oh, yeah. press, and this is the only guy that was like trying to say, "Well, let's see if we can expand the talent pool legitimately." And so that's why I like. Well, that makes perfect sense. I am kind of driven back to the point we began with, though, on this this issue, which is if Harvard in particular is to be treated um, as if it were an arm of the state, then it can't discriminate by race. Or Harvard can't discriminate by race even if it's not an arm of the state because the uh, civil rights law prevents private parties from discriminating by race. Um, would either of those two rationales work equally well, uh, Bill Watkins? Well, yeah, we're going to get into this, uh, talking about some of the other cases, but you know, one problem we have is a lot of you know state as well public accommodations law that divides people up, as well as the federal law, as you've alluded to, divides people up into protected classes. Uh, for example, if I run um, a private school. Um, open to the public or a restaurant open to the public uh, and I was a black person and a Klansman came in and wanted me to make a special cross burning cake for them or something I could tell them to go pound sand uh, but as we'll see from other decisions under public accommodations law if you belong to a special protected class uh, it's difficult for other people to tell you to pound sand if you disagree with their opinions. And I think that sort of filters in a little bit uh, to your question here. You'll have um, that whole dynamic come up again with the civil rights laws and how the courts have expanded them and expanded uh, what classes uh, are protected there, who are the special state favorites. So it I wonder seem... if we should turn to the legacy issue because in the wake of this decision, a lot of commentators, a lot of pundits have said, well, now's the time to end legacy admissions. So what happens is if you are an alumnus of an institution, they give you some extra points when they're evaluating you for admissions. And also there's a related thing, which is the fundraising staff of these universities pick out children of prospective donors, whether they are alumni or not, and highlight them, flag them for careful consideration. They don't usually say, you must admit this person or something like that. They just say, the admission staff, well, give this person a second look. And uh, so the, the thing is, the question, again, we can get to this public-private dichotomy issue. So... It's clearly, to me, more of a problem for a state university to be giving special privileges based on some sort of hereditary status of the person. On the other hand, if it's Harvard or Stanford or or Grove any city, one of the thousands of private colleges, exactly, Patrick Henry, whatever it is, uh, it's their boundary, their private property. They should be able to decide kind of who they want, and if they can charge uh, a multi-part pricing system, so to speak, as what an economist would say, they can charge somebody extra to go there, 
It might be ugly, but it might be the only way to finance the place. And it so might be. I'm not, I'm not. I'm not as troubled by that. I think, you know, it's probably some sunlight on it might occasionally be useful because it can be abused. Well, maybe what makes me want to comment, though, Bill, that uh, Bill Evers, that that there's really a fundamental moral difference between including excluding people based upon their race versus including right. and excluding them based yes. upon their alumni, parents, status, whatever. I think we the would all agree moral, with that. The one is morally wrong, and the other is morally neutral. Uh, right. Maybe it's even good. Who knows? Um, it might be. It might, it might be. Well, it's possible. Think of it from the point of view of some faculty guild member who is saying, all I want are students that can take my classes and are interesting for me to talk to. Uh-huh. And you're bringing in these children of rich people. I, if, if all three of us have been enough around academics to know that that attitude does exist. Oh, for sure. Okay. No, it's but the administrators can say, fine. If we, if you want our buildings to be heated, we need some of these people. No, I think Graham makes a good point there. I mean, again, as we talked about earlier, the purpose of the Fourteenth Amendment was to end right. racial discrimination. Uh, legacy right. admissions are not based Doesn't have on to do race. It. I mean, so, obviously the argument would be, well, with systematic racism, this, that, and the other, uh, the Harvard alumni base uh, is largely white and is, you know, white people will benefit from that. But it's possible that a- athletic preferences might help other some other races. No, that's right. But you know, it, it's uh, so it's not it's not it's really a question of who is deciding what serves the purposes of the institution. No, I, I don't disagree with you. I think uh, I, I agree that that would be a great end game to get to. But under current rules right now, I think there's right. a stronger argument that legacy admissions are OK because they're not explicitly based on race there, and therefore there would right. be a lower standard uh, of review that the courts lower would look at standard. such a sta- classification. Yeah, a lower legal standard specifically. Correct. Uh, and so, so, but the thing is, and this is, this is interesting, though, because I want to point out that we're essentially distinguishing between two kinds of rationales here. The one kind of rationale is that Everything like this should be strictly meritocratic, and anything less than purely meritocratic uh, should be illegal. It's probably wrong, and it should be illegal. But more narrowly, the question is, uh, what kind of distinctions among people are legitimate, and distinctions by race are illegitimate? So to, to, to just refuse racial distinction and racial discrimination is not necessarily the same thing as to affirm universal right. meritocratic ideology. That's correct. No, they're, they're, so I wonder if we. Sorry. No, they're ahead. you know they're good policy arguments these universities can make to you know for alumni admissions, uh, you know, and, and but again that's a race neutral matter. You know, if they want in, you know, going back to the affirmative action issue, uh, a lot of the research I've seen, if you want to increase your diversity, meaning in the modern world, which is just counting the color of people's skin. Uh, a lot of that could be done if you just looked at socioeconomic status uh, rather than explicitly take race into right. account. But 
that does not uh, rig the game as much as the left would like there. So th there are other ways you can it do also, it's also It's also a non-meritocratic approach. I mean, we ought to point out that if you're choosing by social class, you're also not choosing by academic excellence. That's right. It's non-meritocratic. I mean, the, the key thing here is that the Constitution forbids racial discrimination. It doesn't require meritocracy. Right. You can hire your brother-in-law. Yeah. No, that's right. And the right. equal... You uh, shouldn't. You, sh you shouldn't, but you can't. Well, it, it's up to you. You know, I think another right. thing that we ought to be looking at is the mismatch problem. So it, if the universities decide to admit in order to decorate their classes with uh, some certain pattern, favorite pattern of racial makeup, some of the people that are going to be admitted are not going to be prepared to do the academic work. And they're going to flunk out or just have a horrible academic experience. If they were just one tier down, they'd be doing fine. That would be where their suitable uh, academic position is and then where they were prepared for, again, maybe by inadequate K-12 schools. So this mismatch thing has led to a horrible human situation for people that are admitted for these decorative purposes. Uh, decorative I, purposes. I, that's quite a phrase, Bill. Well, I think that that's what it is for it these kind progressives of and, are, and the mm -hmm. faculty that want this. So let's let's turn the page and talk about student loans. I mean, yes. it's directly higher education again. So President Biden, of course, um, he made quite a play for the votes of younger voters by promising massive uh, so-called loan forgiveness. I think it's really just kind of debt balance transfer from students who have borrowed money to the taxpayers who will have to pay it back if he were to succeed. He promised a, a massive benefit. Um, presumably, it helped him at the polls. Um, now, the Supreme Court has said that uh, is improper. And, and again, turning to Watkins on the technical point, why was President Biden, according to the court, why was President Biden's student loan forgiveness thing uh, improper? No, we're back. Uh, we've done episodes on this, the major questions doctrine where essentially uh, we've seen this with administrative agencies. This is a problem of the administrative state uh, where they take either a general or maybe even a specific uh, provision of delegated authority and twist it into something um, that greatly empowers them to make uh, policy and political decisions, such as forgiving uh, $400 billion in student loans, which... Uh, the Supreme Court says, you know, absent some explicit authority uh, for the agency to do that, um, this ought to come from Congress. Uh, and that's essentially what the major questions doctrine is, that these agencies ought not be able to just run loose, essentially making a broad public policy for the nation uh, when we have elected representatives who, at least in theory, we can vote them out uh, when they make a policy decision, but we can't do that with mm -hmm. the bureaucrats um, and the administrative state. So that's the essence of what the court held. But the administration so Watkins, said... William, William Watkins, I, th I think there was another interesting feature to this, which was one of the justices 
uh, gave a contextualist account of how to understand these laws. So the laws state things in sort of general terms in terms of delegating operational authority, you know, implementation authority to these agencies. And the point is made, look, we go through life all the time without every detail of what the extent of things are, but you go into the restaurant, you sit down, it's an, there's an implied contract there that could easily be made express. And similarly, Congress is not saying, okay, you can charge the cost of you know a rocket ship to Mars for some tiny program just because we mentioned this program. And I thought that was, so, so, so the, the, the progressives on the court were saying, well, there's some discretion involved here. And she was pointing out, no, it's, it's really common sense. You can't just take something like this and uh, take it it's out of all It's an order of these. magnitude issue, isn't it? Yes. No, yes. that's right. That's and, why we know, call well, it. Evers is referring to Amy Coney Barrett's excellent exactly. uh, opinion where she was dealing essentially with uh, principal-agent law, which provides a great right. analogy in this situation. And she gave the example if a grocer tells his clerk uh, and gives him the authority, go buy right. apples for the store. And this little grocery right. store rarely keeps... And, and he goes out and buys two tons of apples. Right, rather than <laughs> the 200 that they usually... And buries the store under all the apples. You know, then you know, right. everybody would say, whoa, that's not the intent of the grocer's instructions. We have to look at this. Uh, in the normal circumstance of how the business operates, Context, how a reasonable right. person would have understood this. Um, and that analogy fits greatly uh, in this student loan exactly. forgiveness and the HEROES Act, where, um, again, not only the Biden administration, but even uh, the Trump administration oh, right. before it was I'll abusing uh, the HEROES Act exactly. and its interpretation exactly. to give every student um, essentially uh, uh, of a certain economic level, uh, a debt cancellation. And Amy Coney Barrett uh, gave a great analogy that I think the average Joe can understand, and it makes good common sense. So the claim was, you know, that there had been this emergency uh, escape valve in the legislation crafted and passed by Congress originally, and Congress granted emergency powers to be used in an emergency, and so there was an emergency, and so we used them. Um, and the response to that is not to that degree. That wasn't the grant of emergency power. Am I am I summarizing that right, you Bill? Know, absolutely. That you know certainly maybe some suspension of payments uh, or some more minor uh, tinkering would seem reasonable. But again, to throw you know TNT uh, into the situation and just blow up uh, four hundred <laughs> right. billion of debt. Uh, not so much uh, what was the intent uh, of the emergency measure. Then, of course, there was all the moral arguments sort of in the press, which I guess bore indirectly on the court case, which was basically what's going on here is a transfer of resources from the prudent uh, and lower income to the less prudent and higher income categories of people. That is to say, a lot of people decided not to go to college because they didn't want to go into debt. Uh, and then other people decided that they would just go for it and roll the dice. And, hey, 
you know, the one group wins and the other group loses. That doesn't seem right. But of course, it could be right. It could be okay legally if the Congress had decided to do that, but hadn't. I also think there's some kind of assumptions that are not factually sound. So who gets these racial preferences to Harvard? It's not people from, you know, Harlem. It's people who are, uh, you know, African-American surgeons, parent children and stuff like that. It's, or it's uh, wealthy business people from Nigeria or something. It's not, it's, you know, first of all, the, the uh, Harvard Business Department is also looking for uh, donations from African-American families that the sure, kids are admitting. Sure, so. Mm-hmm. Or, or and so it's just it's a myth to think that somehow the, this is coming from ghetto youth uh, getting and the same kind of thing is true with loan forgiveness. The, these students who are taking out student loans are going to have future incomes that are well above the average taxpayers. So if they're getting forgiven, it's an income transfer from the middle class to the future uh, well-to-do class. Yeah, which seemed like a strange kind of policy principle. But you know... Well, it's, it's, it's buying votes, it's, and so politicians it, do it shamelessly. Yeah, they, they all do that, uh, some more than others. Some have built uh, whole Republican, platforms on... Republicans as well as Democrats. They, we are an indeed. independent institute. <laughs> That's right. So um, let's talk about the other Supreme Court case that I wanted to bring in, which was 303 Creative. You already alluded to it once, Bill Evers, uh, which had to do with a web designer in Colorado uh, who uh, has her own convictions about what marriage is uh, based upon her religious beliefs or maybe her moral beliefs in addition to her religious beliefs. And But, so but this she, was a free speech case, not a freedom of religion case, which is important. Indeed, it was about her creative ex- activities in creating websites for weddings. And she was posting or wanted to post. I, that part's not clear to me that she, she would not do them for persons of the same sex because that would violate her conscience and she wasn't going to do it because she's a creative expression. Her, her free creative expression was her own. And so uh, the court ultimately ruled in her favor, I guess basically saying that, that the law in Colorado was not free to compel her to promote messages right. in which she disbelieved. It's compelled speech. Mm-hmm. But the, we, Bill Watkins should elaborate on this Yeah, you, you should elaborate issue. and especially try and help us understand the other point of view, even if it's mistaken. No, well, it goes back to what we were mentioning, public accommodations laws that uh, Colorado has a very broad statute, um, has a number of protected classes who, if you essentially do business with the general public in some way, uh, they argue you have to serve uh, these people. You cannot uh, turn them away. Uh, Of course, they have uh, sexual orientation as a protected class. Uh, under their statute, and we have our website designer who said, hey, look, I'll, I'll make a website if it's a gay person. Say, for example, uh, say it's an athlete, and they want to do a website with their videos of their athletic performance to maybe help them get a, say, professional contract or something. She'd be happy to do that for them. She does not discriminate against homosexuals, but 
when it comes to marriage, her religious convictions are that marriage is between one man and one woman. And she said she would not create, say, a website promoting a same-sex wedding. Colorado says you have to if you're offering this service to the public. Uh, the Tenth Circuit Court of Appeals, as well as the District Court, agreed, and the Supreme Court, uh, in a 6-3 to three decision, uh, overturned that and said, no, we have held in the past that the state um, cannot compel people to think uh, and act and do based on their right principles in the state's view, um, that you are, as Mr. Ebers pointed out, you're compelling um, this website designer to embrace a view of marriage uh, in her creative activities of the website uh, that she rejects. Um, and this is contrary to the First Amendment there. Again, Evers is right. It's, this wasn't a religion case. It was a free speech case, and it was decided on those grounds. And of course, the dissents have raised a parade of horribles that it will go back now to segregated restaurants and this, that, and the other, Ollie's Barbecue. Uh, but again, that's, you know, storm and fury. Um, you know, our society is, is well there beyond is a, that. There is a kind of parade of horribles that I think is a valid one, which is uh, some homosexual commentators said, well, you know, I really value this decision because... I'm in the creative business, and if some anti-homosexual rights person came in and demanded that I, uh, you know, do creative work promoting their ideas, I would like to be able to say no. And yeah. uh, so that's the important, if the shoe were on the other foot issue, which uh, is, you know, Alan Dershowitz often suggests that we looked at. And uh, I think they, those homosexual commentators that were saying that were making a very, very important point. Why should they have to, you know, be enslaved to promote ideas they disagree with? And this is the case for this web designer. Why should she have to be forced to express ideas as if she sub supports them that she finds repugnant? Well, it's pretty fascinating that we are in a, a different era from uh, prior eras where a lot of our legal thinking was formed. Um, in, in this era, we've entered into a situation where people need to be protected from the coercive enforcement of the state's view of things. Um, and so uh, it matches some much earlier eras. You know, I'm thinking of uh, during the Elizabethan settlement in England, uh, those who were dissenters from the established church. Um, it was important that they were first tolerated, and then later their liberties were protected. Um, the state had its own preferred religious viewpoint, and right. you suffered some disabilities if you didn't agree with the state. In this case, it's remarkably similar. Um, we have a set of people down in the United States who are disbelievers in the state's prescribed viewpoint on marriage. And this viewpoint's been prescribed from the Supreme Court and from various state houses and state courts and so forth. There is a prescribed public state governmental view of marriage, and there are people who disbelieve in that view. So these disbelievers need to have their rights of conscience protected. To me, that seems like a broader concern that's implicated in this 303 creative case. Just 
protecting the rights of disbelievers who don't share the state's moral or social opinions. You know, you're right. It is. I also um, think it's a big issue there, Graham. And unfortunately, um, most on the left, rather than seeing how, if as you put it, the shoe was on the other foot, uh, it's more a priority to force the rest of us into some sort of Procrustean bed of conformity with their ideas of uh, what is right, what is good. Um, and they don't appreciate, uh, probably because they don't ever envision losing power and the state of the world that um, they're in right now is they're in the catbird seat and they don't see getting out of it. But um, we do know that the world can turn upside down very quickly on people. Yeah, it sure I think can. It's also, I also think it's worth pointing out that 50 years ago, some of these situations might be different. People that are termed conservatives 50 years ago might have been trying to enforce morality of some sort and enforce conformity to the state. And it might have been people that back then were called liberals who were saying, no, we support dissent. We recognize nonconformity as something that's valuable. And it's, it's interesting to see. I, I was listening to the podcast of John Wu and Richard Epstein uh, commenting on the June decisions, and they concur that there's been a fascinating turnaround, you know, where an ACLU that might once have protected National Socialists marching in Skokie might not right. do it today. Right. It's fascinating. But I, I do really think that will probably be an increasingly important point of law, how best to protect the rights of disbelievers, dissenting disbelievers who don't share the state's prescribed views. That, that's going to be an increasingly serious problem. Uh, and the rights of conscience really need to be vindicated if we're to stay true to our constitutional uh, liberty principles. So um, setting that aside, uh, do you want to say something briefly about the home equity case, uh, either of you? That was also a Supreme Court ruling that ar argued uh, that ruled that the theft of equity uh, when it was confiscated in um, criminal cases by the state, uh, they couldn't just you know confiscate that will and then walk away with the net profits. They, they were trying to benefit from the, uh, the, the gain, as it were, beyond whatever the criminal wrongdoing cost. They were confiscating equity and then just keeping the difference. And apparently you can't do that. Is that right, Watkins? No, it was essentially just theft. Uh, you know, for example, if, say, I had a piece of property and um, whatever reason I fell on hard times, I missed some tax payments, my property... Let's say it's worth $10,000, and um, if it's the state then sells it at auction uh, for that amount, but I only owe $1,000 really in back taxes, uh, they would just pocket the other nine, and I'm out of luck there. They, they would steal $9,000 for me. And right. unfortunately, the court said that you know, such a principle, this equity theft, um, that many states have in their... Um, forfeiture statutes uh, similar to that, uh, is a no-go there. You're not entitled uh, to the full sum beyond what you're owed there, uh, which should be uh, a pretty easy 
common sense principle uh, that the rest of us see the logic in it. Mm-hmm. Yeah, I think it's also independent. I... Independent Institute has the right to toot its horn about this case because a former researcher at the Independent Institute uh, named Carol Park did some of the research that went into the thinking of the Supreme Court, and that's so, I think, uh, certainly supporting a brief that was consequential in this. So why not toot our horn? That's right. We'll say bravo to Carol Park uh, and the Independent Institute, but also our friends over at the Pacific Legal Foundation. Who, who did the actual litigation. Pivotal pivot right. in the case, yeah, yeah. So uh, one other interesting legal question, uh, well, there are a couple more, I wanted to ask Watkins' view of especially as our legal expert today. So uh, the U.S. District Court for the Western District of Louisiana has a judge named Doughty, Doughty, I'm not sure if I'm pronouncing his name right, who issued an injunction against the Biden administration and told them to stop leaning on social media companies to make them censor stuff that the Biden administration thought was you know, either incorrect or wrong or unhelpful or whatever. Uh, it's, it, apparently... The idea here is that while private companies like social media companies, publishers, they can restrict the speech that they put on their platforms maybe, but what they certainly can do is allow themselves to become a puppet of government pressure. And according to this judge and this injunction, that seems to have been happening. This is pretty remarkable, really, uh, that there's there's a finding that federal authorities leaned on social media to make them into censors at their bidding. I would be, there's a slight subtlety in the way that you said it. You said they can't allow themselves. No, actually, I think a free society would allow them to follow some authority, but it wouldn't allow this authority to impose, which was part of the way you all said it at other times. So, uh, Agreed, agreed. Okay. (laughs) And in the course of the commentary on this from the New York Times, fascinating you know now the federal government can never uh you know give its own view or why can't we have some of the commentators said well why can't we have all the restrictions that australia and the european union have that would be much better to have uh, opinion regulated and uh, in detail so this is actually an interesting case and it shows how the progressive drift toward centralized manipulation of speech, uh, how far it's gone. I would be interested very much in Bill Watkins' thoughts on all this whole thing and what, what, you know, the, 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 what the judge had to conclude in order to issue this. He had to have certain presumptions about how this case was going to continue. And the, the Biden people have now objected and so forth. So if you could tell us more, Bill, that would be great. You know, an injunction essentially is an equitable remedy uh, to get an injunction in federal district court. Uh, you essentially have, there's a number of factors. But one, which you alluded to that's very important, is that you have a good shot of winning on the merits of the matter. Uh, That's uh, a key factor there. Of course, you've suffered an actual injury as well uh, in this case. So, you know, the judge found, hey, this looks um, like this dog might hunt here, uh, enough so that I am going to issue 
an injunction. And, you know, this is just a good example of, uh, I call it, you know, it's a conspiracy. Now, a conspiracy is not a bad word. All a conspiracy is an, an agreement between two or more persons to accomplish uh, some objective. Typically in the law, it's an, um, an illegal objective, illegal objective. But here we have, uh, again, with our current environment, you know, there are a lot of folks that work in these companies that are more than happy uh, to help the Biden administration and the administrative state crack down on ideas and censor them uh, that they're not in agreement with. Um, and you know, there are arguments, too, that your Twitters and Googles and these other uh, type companies, um, Facebook or Meta, whatever they're called now, um, you know, there's an argument. We talked about public accommodations law a little bit ago um, that they should be treated like an inn or something that, yeah, you have to take all comers um, and rent a room to them. Not saying that's a good or bad idea, but that's in play. I'm, I'm going to just stay. I think it's a bad idea. But the, the, the thing is, again, it, it should not be that the platform owner or the media company can't have a point of view. It has to be that the state can't impose by threat or direction a course of action on that company. They could have a point of view. They can have a dumb point of view. In this case, one of the complainants says, look, we have this thing called the Great Barrington Declaration that says we should have concentrated remedies for COVID-19 on the most uh, medically vulnerable. The state is suppressing this, saying that this is, uh, you know, wrongheaded, evil, whatever. And it's suppressing our free speech by getting us canceled from these social media platforms. Uh, the judge found there was plenty of evidence that this was going on. And uh, so I think we should certainly applaud the judge, and we should not be at all sanguine about the reception that these people would say, oh, let's have what Australia has, let's have what the European Union has. That would be a frightful. And really, it's shocking to see the New York Times of it Pentagon is. Papers mm -hmm. fame of, uh, you know, Solomon, all, all the sorts of things that the New York Times historically has stood for in the way of freedom of mm -hmm. the press advocating this kind of censorship regime. Some of the details in the judge's order are just so remarkable. Like, here's one. This is, I, I'm reading this verbatim from um, part of his um, uh, uh, ruling that he issued uh, where he notes that... Uh, yeah, uh, in January, just three days after President Biden took office, uh, Biden's guy emailed Twitter, and this is pre-Elon Musk Twitter, uh, e emailed Twitter and, and told them to remove an anti-vaccine tweet from Robert F. Kennedy Jr. And so, um, and then they, they kept badgering them and said, I wonder if we can get moving on the process of having it removed ASAP. And then they emailed Twitter again, and within 45 minutes, uh, social media giant removed it quickly. Uh, they responded to the pressure. And then there were a whole bunch of other examples like that where, you know, they kept pushing him and they pushed him harder. And then finally, you know, Twitter would give in and do whatever they were told. And so at that point, it's not Twitter making a decision about what to feature right. or what not to feature. It's them giving in to pressure from the White House. Right. 
So why, by saying this, ne neither of the three of us are necessarily endorsing all the vaccine views of Robert F. Kennedy Jr. No. But we're saying that part of a free society is that without the state suppressing him, he should be able to discuss right. his ideas on this. That's right. Mm -hmm. Yeah, I mean, you know, and, and again, I'm not even saying that, that, you know, Twitter, I think Twitter should make its own decisions. I don't think it should be right. in the pocket of the government one way or the other, but it seems pretty darn clear. They, they even resorted, uh, some of these Biden people resorted to obscenities to hector and harangue the authorities at Facebook. Uh, to get them to comply with their censorship requests, and then they did. So, I mean, that's so, not private des decision-making. So one thing, so we're very grateful to Elon Musk for giving us all this information. Yeah, for uh, Jonathan sure. Turley, the uh, constitutional law professor at George Washington University, has said, you know, uh, you know uh, Zuckerberg has uh, put out a new competitor to Twitter, and uh, he's, he's supposed to be Mr. Nice Guy Twitter. And Turley said, well, if you want to show that you're a devotee of free speech, would you please re release your interactions with the federal government? Ho, ho. So, so <laughs> that we can see uh, exactly what happened between you the way we can see what happened with the Twitter people. So far, Zuckerberg has not acceded to this idea. Right. So far, but it would be no interesting go. to see it. <laughs> yeah, it would be interesting to see the cage fight between him and Musk, too, but I think that's not going to happen. <laughs> uh, let's, uh, we're going to come in for a landing soon here. Um, you know, one thing that we're talking about a bunch of legal stuff, and especially the Supreme Court, I can't help but wonder. Um, when is the drumbeat against Clarence Thomas going to die down? It seems like there's just a whole lot of a whole lot of effort to put him in as negative a possible light. Uh, have you thought about this at all, either of you, Bill Evers or, or Bill Watkins? It'll die down when Justice Thomas either retires or passes away uh, into glory. Uh, he is Ooh, public enemy number one for the left. Uh, yep. He is a black conservative. He doesn't think like black people are supposed to, according to the left. Therefore, he is dangerous that he has independent thoughts, that he is not authentic uh, to them. And he's also one of the most effective uh, dissenters and writers right. on the Supreme Court of getting down to basics uh, and shining truth on legal issues. Uh, so he is a definite danger to them. So they're not going to stop anytime soon. This is uh, going to be yikes. a continual process. How, how exhausting I think, I for think, him that's got to be. I think we should break down some of this into several parts. So one of the charges is, oh, he had affirmative action for himself. He had racial preferences for himself. But uh, Jason Riley of the Wall Street Journal dug into this, and he said, well, you know, I don't really think this is true. I mean... When he went to Holy Cross, it's not obvious that he received affirmative action. When he went to Yale, it's not obvious. It's clear from reading the guy's writings that he's extremely smart. Now, maybe he's not the smartest person that ever was on the Supreme Court, but he's certainly— He's one of the smartest. You know, among, <laughs> among the smarter ones, and it's just— I've talked to him myself briefly. He's a very intelligent, interesting guy. 
And so then there's the next thing is, well, he's a friend of a, a businessman named Trammell Crow. And so Trammell Crow has given him things at various times, like vacation and so forth. So why hasn't he reported this in detail? By the way, Trammell Crow hasn't had any disputes before the Supreme Court. And the answer is, why can't he have a friend? I'm the guy goes like, he goes out and does things among all sorts of regular people uh, that are not rich as well. He, <laughs> a, a mixer with all of American society. And so he has some rich friends. What's the, what's the problem here? Uh, a related thing is there's a meritocratic scholarship given by a thing called the Horatio Alger Association. And he's become a member of that. Uh, Maya Angelou was a member of it. Thurgood Marshall was a member of it. Uh, obviously, many white people are also. It's the idea of Thurgood, uh, uh, sorry, of Horatio Alger is rising up from your bootstraps, striving and succeeding, although coming from a lower economic background. Uh, these scholarships help kids in need, and he helps some, some have events sometimes in the Supreme Court chambers with the, uh, you know, the uh, consent of the other Supreme Court justices are not against this. He meets sometimes rich people. I, the people he's meeting who are young and who he's inspiring are all poor people. And again, it's just the most invidious thing. There's no, there's no case in this where somebody who he's made a friend of from this has had a case before the Supreme Court where he has done something uh, that he shouldn't have. The last thing that they've thrown at him is property of various sorts. This goes back somewhat to the Trammell Crow thing, but, you know, uh, some of his friends that are well-to-do have helped uh, take a family homestead and turn it into a museum, things like this. Uh, again, it's just the most silly, smear attacks on a man who has been the subject of uh, mistreatment for a long time and has borne up under it very well. Uh, and and, and it's part of a larger thing because progressives have lost an uh, ideological hegemony in the Supreme Court instead of trying to win it back with better legal arguments, they're smearing the institution and trying to delegitimize it. But you know, and, it's, not, it's not just you know, one-sided. Um, to be fair, yesterday NPR reported that Justice Sotomayor uh, has earned $3.7 right. million dollars from her so-called children's right. books, which were bought by various libraries and public and educational institutions at the prodding, according to NPR, the prodding of Sotomayor's staff. So she's right. leveraged her position on the court to sell books which have garnered her $3.7 million, according to NPR. So should she resign from the court, too? Actually, I don't think she should. I don't either. But I also think, by the way, the New York Times, which has been the leader in these attacks on Clarence Thomas, usually puts one small paragraph towards the very end saying, Sotomayor has done this too. So they are <laughs> protecting themselves against this point okay. of view ground, but not very, okay. not very fairly. Okay. It's not like they're doing front page, you know, multiples, full pages inside stories on this the way they are with Clarence Thomas. 
your initial comment, Bill Watkins, was pretty much of a reality check. He's Thomas is always going to be a target. I think the three of us have probably all watched live the hearings when he was before the yes. Senate Judiciary Committee uh, when Joe Biden was the chairing high-tech it. high-tech lynching. Right. Yeah, he called it a high-tech high lynching. Uh, and, you know, just like it's been nonstop since since those hearings. Uh, I, I feel for the guy. No, he's a decent fellow. He tries, um, you know, to work hard. He dissents. He concurs when he can. Uh, occasionally gets a few majority opinions on cases we don't mm, talk about that aren't as high profile. <laughs> That's right. Uh, but That's he right. is probably, uh, he is a jewel of the American legal profession, and the left hates him for it. Uh, we're kind of at the end here. Um, I always like to give my uh, colleagues uh, a chance to toss any last other topic into the hopper that you might want to. Uh, Bill Evers, I think you had one, one thing you wanted to mention that was California-related. Am I right? Yes. So we're having an unfortunate situation in California. Perennially, we revisit things like how to teach math, how to teach reading in the public schools. And so various ideological factions try to capture that moment rather than let scientific research govern what makes the most sense. So we're going through that right now. And so people are trying to put political correctness and wokeness into the classroom. They're issuing documents that are full of bogus citations to research, wrong-headed interpretations of the research. They're trying, so the right way to teach math involves things like learning things like the times tables and learning things like log division ways of what are called algorithms, way to do certain kinds of problems. They don't like this. They want the students to invent ways to solve the problems. They want to neglect the math facts or postpone learning until quite late. They have all these unscientific ideas that they're trying to impose. It looks like they have the votes to do it. They've tried to, instead of Algebra 2, they want kids to learn kind of a basic numeracy thing that they're calling data science. So there's a, a whole series of catastrophes that are probably going to be imposed. It's not all finalized yet, but it looks like they're going to be, be imposed on the California children in the public schools. I say it's going to lead to another thing like the math wars of the 1990s where there was a parental uh, revolt against this. Or, uh, since we've gone somewhat farther and we had the experience of parents seeing the classes, the Zoom classes during COVID-19, we may have a big parental revolt along the lines of parental choice and uh, real dissatisfaction with the public schools. Well, yeah, I, if, the hard, if the kids aren't going to gonna be taught math, uh, then I can it's see hard, parents... It's hard to know. There's a long uh, time of attachment to public schools. But anyway, yeah, sure is. They're, they're, this is sheer foolishness on the part of the educrats. And, and that, horrible for children. And, you know, there's like six six million children in California's public schools and an unbelievable amount of teacher training and textbook uh -huh. buying and computer program buying and on and on and on that's going to be just wasted and counterproductive. Hmm. Well, we're grateful to you for blowing the whistle on that, Bill Evers. Um, 
Anything you'd like to throw into the hopper as a last thought of Bill Watkins before we say goodbye to our friends? I just want to give props to the people of Pickens County, South Carolina, who about one week ago booed our senior senator, Lindsey Graham, off the <laughs> stage at a Trump rally on the 4th of July when Lindsey was coming out thinking he was going to get cheered for supporting Donald Trump. And he lasted about six minutes before he had to throw in the towel as his... Yeah, what was that all about? Here's what it's all about. A lot of the media tried to portray it as, oh, these are these Trump people just angry that uh, he chided Trump related to January 6th. No, it's not. What it was was South Carolina peasants with pitchforks who never get to see Lindsey Graham (laughs) because he doesn't speak in public. He shows up on TV and they finally had an opportunity uh, after years and years of flip-flops and betrayals uh, to tell him what they thought of him, and he didn't like that message. So props to the peasants with pitchforks. <laughs> yeah. Okay. We appreciate that from our friend in South Carolina who really knows what's going on on the ground there, I think. Um, thank you both for talking with us today about all these com- somewhat complicated legal issues. We hope we... Shed some light for our many friends who join us for these things. Um, Thanks again, Bill Watkins, for joining us from South Carolina. Good to be here. And Bill Evers from California. Thank you, Graham. And we do invite all of our friends to come back again for Independent Outlook. And, of course, in the meanwhile, keep in mind that we load our website with all sorts of insightful analysis and information for you. Please feel free to visit independent.org anytime. And we'll see you next time on Independent Outlook. Take care, everybody.